You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 248, Charleston Falls. In our last episode, we left the British having positioned themselves around Charleston. General Henry Clinton, along with General Cornwallis and Admiral Arbuthnot, had positioned their forces all around the city, ready by the end of April 1780 to blast the American defenses and take Charleston for the king. The American commander, General Benjamin Lincoln, remained in Charleston awaiting the British attack. Lincoln had assigned Lieutenant Colonel William Washington to command the light infantry forces outside of the city to skirmish with the advancing British and Hessians. Colonel Washington came from Virginia, a distant cousin of the commander-in-chief. He had some combat experience, one of the few Americans wounded at Trenton during a daring cavalry charge. In 1780, Washington was still in his late 20s. General Lincoln believed he would serve as an effective commander of the light infantry around Charleston. Also outside of Charleston was Brigadier General Isaac Yugi. Although Yugi was a Continental General, he was given command of about 500 South Carolina militia who had been called up to oppose the British attack. With these forces, Yugi secured a position at Monk's Corner, a crossroad along the Cooper River, a little more than 30 miles north of Charleston. American control kept supply lines and communication lines from Charleston open to the north. But despite the importance of this position, Yugi found that his militia were woefully inadequate to face any attack. He reported that two of his companies did not even have muskets. A third had muskets, but no ammunition. These men were largely untrained and untested in battle. Yugi put his militia in reserve on the far bank of the river, relying on Colonel Washington to engage the enemy with his Continentals and keeping the militia as a backup. A British General Clinton wanted to take Monk's Corner as a way of further isolating the American defenders inside Charleston. He deployed Lieutenant Colonel Bannister Tarleton, still in command of a Loyalist cavalry that did not have enough horses for all of its men. With them was Loyalist Infantry Regiment, commanded by another regular officer, Major Patrick Ferguson. Both men were experienced combat officers. Tarleton had gained a reputation during the fighting around New York and Philadelphia as an aggressive commander. Ferguson, inventor of the Ferguson rifle, had been badly wounded at Brandywine, but had returned to service. With them, Lieutenant Colonel James Webster led two regiments of British regulars. Although Colonel Webster was the senior officer, he kept his regulars in reserve and gave Colonel Tarleton orders to lead the strike on the enemy. On the evening of April 13th, Tarleton's legion and Ferguson's volunteers moved forward in a night march, planning to attack the Americans before dawn. 
During their advance, they captured an American courier with a letter from Yugi to Lincoln, which described the deployment of the American defenses at Monk's Corner. Tarleton moved quickly, advancing 18 miles in a five-hour night march. At around 3 a.m., the British reached the American camp. The Americans were taken completely by surprise. General Yugi and Colonel Washington fled into the swamps nearby with some of their men, abandoning their horses and equipment. One French officer with the Americans, Chevalier Pierre-Francois Vernier, attempted to surrender but was struck down by the British attackers and killed. The Americans put up almost no defense as they fled in terror. One company of Americans simply fell in line behind the British and pretended to march along with them as allies until they had an opportunity to flee into the swamps before first light. The British managed to kill or wound 33 Americans and captured another 63, with the remainder fleeing into the swamps. The British suffered only three wounded among the attackers. It was a complete rout. The British captured the camp and all of its contents. Charleston was now cut off from the north. Colonel Tarleton also happily reported that he had captured enough horses that he could finally mount his entire cavalry regiment. Tarleton, never one to rest on his laurels, moved his cavalry back toward the coast along the eastern side of Charleston, where he managed to capture nine sloops carrying Patriot supplies, including 20 cannons. The British had spent months slowly encircling Charleston, giving its defenders time to react. Up until this time, General Benjamin Lincoln, commander of the Continental Southern Army, had been frustrated by the lack of cooperation that he had received from the local political leaders. But with the threat of British invasion literally staring at them from across the river, the political leaders finally fell in line and gave the Continental General the support he needed to defend the city. I'm joking, of course. The political leadership in South Carolina continued to bicker with the military commander, and even with disaster on the horizon, refused to make any compromises with the military. South Carolina leaders had repeatedly rejected any plan to arm slaves for defense of the state. Lincoln had called on state leaders to raise 2,000 white militia but if they could not, then fill the ranks with black soldiers. The response was nothing. The president of South Carolina, John Rutledge, refused even to respond to the request. Allowing blacks to use guns, even if they were freed afterwards, would put a dangerous element into the state that could eventually harm them. Those soldiers could form the core of a future slave uprising to liberate their fellow laborers. So, with armed blacks off the table, Lincoln suggested at least creating a pioneer force from the slaves. Pioneers would handle the dirty work of digging tunnels and entrenchments. It was common labor that slaves were used for all the time. These men would not learn to fire guns or even touch combat weapons. Again, the answer was no. Even training black people to work as a unit and giving them any sort of training was simply unacceptable. A frustrated Lincoln told officials that if he could not get the support of local militia, either black or white, that he would have to abandon the city to the British. Rutledge's response was that Lincoln was bluffing. Charleston was too important to the cause of the United States, and he would never abandon the city. The state could not raise enough white soldiers and would not provide any black soldiers 
and Lincoln would just have to find a way to make the defense of the city work anyway. Rutledge was, I guess, correct. Lincoln had direct orders from Congress to hold Charleston at all costs. Any attempt to abandon the city without a fight would have meant an ignominious end to this military career, much like it did for Generals Schuyler and Sinclair, who had abandoned Fort Ticonderoga without a fight a few years earlier. Beyond that, Lincoln had spent a year building up the defenses around the city. Although British forces outnumbered his by two to one, if Lincoln retreated now, it would likely have to face those British forces in open field. It was better to engage them from behind their entrenchments. The arrival of 750 Virginia Continentals in April had boosted spirits, but that only gave Lincoln about 2,500 regulars, supplemented by another 3,000 or so militia, as well as the sailors from the wrecked ships. British General Clinton commented on the arrival of the American reinforcements in April as good news. More prisoners when the Americans surrendered. The British Navy had established itself in the inner harbor, British artillery was poised to decimate the city, and British infantry and cavalry were well on their way towards surrounding the city. Lincoln advised Governor Rutledge to leave the city with the rest of the civilian leadership. Rutledge left town with three councilmen, but Lieutenant Governor Christopher Gadsden and a few others remained in the city. Gadsden, you may recall, had been appointed a brigadier in the Continental Army, but had resigned his commission when he grew frustrated at his inability to give orders to major generals who were commanding in his state. As acting governor, however, Gadsden believed he could use his civilian leadership to instruct the army on the defenses around Charleston. General Lincoln called a council of war to discuss an attack on a relatively isolated post of 750 enemy soldiers near Wapata. His officers unanimously opposed this action and instead suggested consideration of evacuating the city. General Lachlan McIntosh argued for immediate evacuation of the Continental Army so that it could survive to fight another day preferably further inland, once the British army was more spread out and unsupported by its navy. Delay meant the likelihood that they would be surrounded. Lincoln, however, could not bring himself to abandon the city without even a fight. A few days later, on April 18th, 2,600 British and Hessian reinforcements arrived from New York, only increasing the imbalance of forces. Lincoln once again gathered a council of war a few days later, on April 20th, to once again consider their options. McIntosh still believed that evacuation was possible. Other officers believed Lincoln should simply ask for terms of surrender at this point. Lieutenant Governor Gadsden joined the council for a time and asked that they not take any action until he could discuss the situation with South Carolina's Privy Council, and he left. As the officers continued their discussions, Gadsden returned with several Privy Council members. The exact words exchanged were not recorded, but one witness noted that the civilians, quote, used the council rudely and insisted that they not try to abandon the city. They claimed that the South Carolina militia, most of whom had never stood in battle before, were willing to fight to the last man and that the Continentals should be willing to do so as well. One member of the Privy Council, 
even threatened that if the Continentals attempted to abandon the city, that Charleston would just throw open the gates to the British and help them capture the Continentals. But Lincoln did not make any final decision that night, but the next morning he summoned his officers once again. They agreed to ask the British for terms of surrender. The army would be slaughtered if it attempted to retreat across the waterways that the British had already blocked. On April 21st, Lincoln ordered a soldier to go to the British lines under a flag of truce to request a six-hour cessation of hostilities so that the Americans could propose terms of surrender. Lincoln proposed that the Continental Army be permitted to leave the city with its arms and equipment and march north for at least ten days unmolested, that Continental ships be permitted to depart the harbor, and that all citizens be protected in their persons and property. In other words, Lincoln was willing to surrender Charleston, but not his army. Clinton, realizing the strength of his position, countered with the notion that the Continentals should all just surrender now and they'd become prisoners of war, and that way the British wouldn't have to kill them and level the city. Unable to agree on terms, the two sides continued the siege. Both sides kept up fire on each other day and night. On the morning of April 24th, 200 Continentals attacked a Hessian work party that was digging advanced works close to the enemy lines. The Americans managed to kill about 15 of the enemy with bayonets and take almost as many prisoners. However, General Moultrie's brother, Thomas, was killed in this attack. Continental General Louis de Portel arrived from Washington's headquarters the following day. The experienced French engineer, who had taken a commission in the Continental Army years earlier, had arrived too late to assist with the Charleston defenses. He also arrived with the bad news that Washington would absolutely not be sending any more reinforcements. The Continental leadership inside the city once again considered an evacuation, but decided it was just too risky at this point. The siege continued for another couple of weeks. The Americans had to slow their rate of fire to conserve ammunition. The British pounded away at American defenses and slowly moved their lines ever closer to the city walls. The Americans could no longer bring food into the city and could not even send out couriers. On May 7th, Fort Moultrie on Sullivan's Island surrendered to the British. The following day, Clinton called on Lincoln once again to surrender, adding that failure to do so would mean any, quote, vindictive severity that fell on the city after its capture would be Lincoln's fault. The Americans once more tried to negotiate the terms of their surrender. They agreed that the Continental Army would become prisoners of war, but that they'd be allowed to keep their baggage and sidearms, and that the militia would be allowed to go home on parole. British General Clinton refused the terms. Inside the city, the situation only grew more desperate. Food and ammunition was running out. The British began firing hotshot into the city, setting dozens of houses on fire. The South Carolina militia, still in the city, petitioned General Lincoln to accept any terms of surrender. Many of the militia simply abandoned their posts and tried to slip away. Remember, these were the same men that Gadsden assured Lincoln would fight to the last man. At this point, even Gadsden agreed that it was time to negotiate a surrender. On May 8th, General Lincoln informed General Clinton that he would accept the terms Clinton had offered in his last letter. And with that, the guns fell silent on both sides. 
On May 12th, the defenders marched out of Charleston. Clinton had denied them the honors of war and prohibited them from flying their regimental flags. The defenders stacked their muskets and marched off to their fates as prisoners of war. Only about 500 militia surrendered with the army. The remainder had fled or hid inside the city, hoping to blend in with the civilians. Clinton appointed General Leslie to serve as military governor of Charleston. Leslie's threat to have grenadiers search the private homes encouraged many more militia to turn out and surrender their arms. Moultrie noted that it seemed that there were more militia surrendering than had ever appeared under arms during the siege. Apparently, many older or infirm residents of the city surrendered as militia in order to protect younger men. In total, more than 5,000 Americans surrendered in the city, the largest American loss of the entire war. Roughly half of these were Continental soldiers, many of whom were doomed to die in British captivity. The Americans also surrendered 391 artillery pieces, 6,000 muskets, and 33,000 rounds of ammunition. During the siege, the Americans had suffered 89 killed and 138 wounded. The British suffered 76 killed and 189 wounded. The surrender had kept the battle deaths rather light, but the loss of the army was devastating to the American cause. Charleston's fall to the British was seen as a great victory in London and among loyalists in America. Even if there were still difficulties in northern states, the fall of Charleston seemed to foretell that at least the southern colonies would return to crown authority. Unlike the fall of northern towns, where the capture of a city seemed to have little impact on the surrounding countryside, the fall of Charleston seemed to mean that the fall of all of South Carolina was close at hand. Garrisons in other parts of the state surrendered without a fight. The forts at 96, Camden, Beaufort, and Georgetown all surrendered without a fight. South Carolina General Andrew Williamson gave his soldiers the choice of surrendering or retreating to the mountains to continue the struggle. His men opted for surrender. Under the terms of surrender, militia received immediate parole and were permitted to return home. They only had to promise never again to take up arms against the king. Clinton attempted a carrot-and-stick policy in a series of decrees after the fall of Charleston. Anyone who continued to bear arms against the king's troops, or convince others to do so, would suffer imprisonment and confiscation of all property. On the other hand, a separate decree declared that anyone taking an oath of allegiance would receive a full pardon, despite any past participation in the rebellion. The offer of a pardon and the fear of losing property led many in South Carolina to return to the fold as loyal colonists. Several leading citizens around Georgetown even sent a note to General Cornwallis stating that, quote, As the original cause of the disputes between Great Britain and our colonies was our being taxed without being represented, and by a proclamation of 1st June last issued by His Excellency Sir Henry Clinton, Knight of the Bath and Commander-in-Chief of His Majesty's Forces in America, and Marriott Arbuthnot, Esquire, Vice Admiral of the Blue and Commander-in-Chief of His Majesty's Ships, we are assured that we shall not be taxed, but by our own representatives in the General Assembly. We, therefore, desirous of becoming British subjects, 
in which capacity we promise to behave ourselves with all becoming fidelity and loyalty. General Clinton wrote confidently to Lord Germain in London that South Carolina had been secured. He stated that, quote, there are few men in South Carolina who are not our prisoners or in arms with us. Within a few weeks, General Clinton granted parole to General Lincoln, allowing him to report to Philadelphia to brief Congress on the loss. Then, under the terms of his parole, he would be restricted to New England until properly exchanged. Other top generals, including Georgia native Lachlan McIntosh, remained in custody. North Carolina General James Hogan refused parole, preferring to stay in prison with his men, ostensibly to prevent them from joining Loyalist regiments in an attempt to get out of prison. Hogan would die in prison a few months later. General Clinton returned to New York, leaving Charleston in early June. He turned over command to General Cornwallis. Although the two men did not really get along, Cornwallis's rank and experience made him the obvious choice for the command. Clinton had succeeded in his goal of taking Charleston. Any remaining campaign would be left up to subordinates. Clinton and Cornwallis had not gotten along particularly well uh, ever since a dispute way back a few years ago when Cornwallis had betrayed Clinton's confidence by telling then Commander General Howe that Clinton had expressed frustration at serving under Howe. Clinton left Cornwallis with instructions to keep South Carolina secure, but also gave him authority to move into North Carolina if he could do so without putting South Carolina at risk. Clinton also took more than a third of his army that he had brought south back to New York, along with Arbuthnot and the bulk of the naval fleet. At this point, Cornwallis had his independent command, and he was going to do with it whatever he could. Next time, we're going to head out west, where British and American forces are fighting to secure the area around the Mississippi River, we will discuss the Cumberland Compact and the St. Louis Raid. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week you get a menu of 35 meal options as well as 60 add-ons including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box, while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters and the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and Mike Hager. 
and to Robert Morris Circle supporters Lee Seam and Michael Mulhern. I also want to wish a grateful welcome to new standard bearers Reed Brown, Tyler Barnhart, Brent Barnhart, Moise de Vellier, and Rick Chu. All of you can look forward to receiving your first flag magnet this month. I really do appreciate all the support people have given for this podcast. I recently rejected another opportunity to join a company that wanted to put ads all over my podcast. While I do occasionally post ads that I think will be of interest to my listeners, I continue to avoid putting lots of generic ads that I find annoying when I listen to other podcasts. I can do that because so many of you have been generous in helping me cover my expenses. Anyone can support this podcast for as little as $2 a month on Patreon. If you don't like ongoing commitments, I also appreciate one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. Links for all of these are at the bottom of each blog episode. Just go to blog.amrevpodcast.com. There, you can also find a transcript of each episode, along with relevant pictures, links, and a list of books and other online resources related to each topic. This week, we looked at the fall of Charleston. For many years, I blamed this terrible loss on the fact that I thought General Benjamin Lincoln was just a terrible general. I guess I've come to appreciate that the world is not quite that black and white. Lincoln had an immense amount of pressure on him by both local leaders and the Continental Congress to fight for Charleston despite the odds. George Washington made pretty much the same decision in New York City in 1776 that Lincoln did in Charleston in 1780, and for many of the same reasons. The reason Washington escaped New York, while Lincoln did not escape Charleston, had more to do with the speed and strategy of their enemy, not better leadership in the Continental Army. I suppose, at the end of the day, a military leader gets the praise or blame for any success or failure, not because that person is solely responsible, but more because it's easier to bend the blame on just one person. Sure, I guess Lincoln could have defied everyone and retreated, or perhaps he might have taken a more aggressive approach against the British landing, but suggesting alternatives with the hindsight of history is the advantage that we have, not the one the commander at the time had. In the end, I think the political leaders in South Carolina, including Governor Rutledge and Lieutenant Governor Gadsden, have to bear some blame for failing to turn out a credible militia force to defend the city or at least to not accept the realistic appraisal of military professionals about the defensibility of the city. But even these folks were limited by systemic restrictions that existed in South Carolina for generations. The end result, though, as I said, was the single greatest loss for the Americans in the course of the war. It very much put at risk the chances that the southern colonies would remain independent states. However, like many British victories, And despite efforts to learn from prior mistakes, the British leadership learned the hard lesson once again that capturing a big city in a colony does not mean the colony will simply accept defeat. We will see how that unfolds in future episodes. Now, there are many good books on the Siege of Charleston. My recommendation this week is one called A Gallant Defense, The Siege of Charleston, 1780, by Carl Borick. It's a well-researched and detailed look at the siege itself. Some have criticized this book for being a little dry. 
I suppose it is heavy on facts and a little light on storytelling, but for my research purposes, I guess I like that. The author, Carl Borick, was the director at the Charleston Museum when he wrote the book in 2003, and I believe he's still in that position today. So, if you want more details on the Siege of Charleston, get a copy of Borick's A Gallant Defense. My online recommendation is an online booklet called The Original Papers Relating to the Siege of Charleston, 1780. This is a collection of General Benjamin Lincoln's papers and correspondence regarding the Siege of Charleston. It has lots of great primary source information about the siege from Lincoln's perspective. The collection was published in Charleston in 1898, but it really is just a compilation of Lincoln's documents with little else. You can read or download the document from archive.org. As always, I've included links on my blog and website. My question this week asks, what would a British victory in the American Revolutionary War have looked like? Well, I suppose the best chance of a British military victory came in late 1776 when the Continentals were trying to defend New York City. If the British had landed troops on northern Manhattan Island, they could have cut off any Continental retreat and forced the entire enemy to surrender. This is essentially what General Clinton did to General Lincoln at Charleston, and Clinton had suggested a similar strategy to the then-commanding General Howe in New York, but Howe rejected that strategy. Had the British captured the Continental Army in New York, this likely would have been such a blow to American morale that the Congress would have been unable to raise another army and would have sued for peace. Since General Howe and Admiral Howe were also appointed peace commissioners and apparently were empathetic to the colonists' cause, they likely would have given out pardons to just about everyone and allowed things to return to normal. With that established, the post-rebellion period could have gone in several ways. The British might have recognized that the colonists had legitimate concerns over taxation without representation and adapted the colonial system to meet those concerns. Another option would have been to crack down on the colonies and take away even more rights of self-rule. There were factions in London for either of these two strategies. If London went with the former strategy of accommodation, the U.S. would have continued to grow and prosper. However, it probably would have demanded more and more autonomy, eventually seeking virtual independence within the British Empire, much like Canada or Australia have today there probably also would not have been a single United States. Rather, there would be smaller regional countries, such as perhaps the nation of New England, or perhaps even individual states like Virginia operating as their own countries. The need to unite would not have been as strong since the colonies would rely on Britain for security, and sectional rivalries probably would have kept the regions divided. If Britain went with the latter policy of cracking down on the colonies after a victory, the colonies probably would have continued to resist and fight back, eventually leading to independence at some later time, much like what happened in Ireland. In that case, though, the U.S. probably would have grown more slowly, resulting in more French, Spanish, and Russian influence in different regions within North America. The bottom line, though, is that some form of independence, I think, was inevitable. The colonies were growing too populous and too economically powerful 
to be contained forever. Further, Britain never would have given full representation in Parliament to the point where Britain would have become a minority within its own empire. So, for me, independence was more of a question of when and how than if it would happen. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, or Quora. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.